Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8.com. Uh, among other things, collaborating regularly with uh, fellow threat intelligence practitioners throughout the industry, as well as other, other teams, incident responders, uh, malware analysts, and so on. I don't think that we share enough in this industry, and I know that everyone's trying to maintain the confidentiality of, of the goings-on within their organizations, but I think there is a way that we can share at least some of the telemetry we're seeing from threat actors and some of the, um, the tactics, techniques, and procedures that we're witnessing to help each other along. Welcome to Needlestack, the podcast for professional online research. I'm your host, Matt Ashburn, and Personally, I prefer intelligence that's handcrafted and locally sourced. And I'm Jeff Phillips, tech industry veteran and curious to a fault. Today, we're continuing our series covering security operations centers and cyber threat intelligence, and we're excited to have a special guest. Today, we're joined by Lance Taylor, and Lance is the manager of intelligence and threat management at Clear. Uh, any of you that travel have seen Clear as you're going through security at airports. Um, Lance is a 22-year Air Force veteran with a career intelligence, in intelligence and uh, cyber at the NSA and the Air Intelligence Agency. Um, let's see, Lance, you served as a Korean translator for the U-2 reconnaissance mission. Um, you earned a commission as a cyber officer and built out the Air Force's cyber presence throughout the world. Um, you were also tasked in an elite group to revamp the cyber officer program and shift the curriculum's focus towards uh, a future in cyber warfare. And uh, my understanding is this is the curriculum that's in use today. So Lance, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, why don't we start with that last one? Tell me, tell me a little bit about that curriculum. Um, what was it like when you were in that program and, and how did the change take shape? So when I first started in the program, it was very much geared towards a support role for not only the warfighter, uh, the pilots and the Air Force mission, but also uh, for everyday business as the Air Force moved further into uh, cyber developments. And um, everything was geared towards support and uh, focused on land mobile radios, air traffic control systems, and your conventional uh, support network for the squadron. And so as time went on and the various, uh, air, the various services, uh, Air Force, Army, Navy, Marines, they all started to move towards uh, cyber warfare as an effective uh, way to accomplish our mission. And so 
the Air Force decided, you know what, it's time for us to revamp our curriculum, move away from from a support focus and more towards an offensive and defensive uh, mission as it pertains to cyber. That's really interesting. And in your career, given all that you've done, what have been some of the lessons that you've learned along the way to make intelligence-focused research uh, better, easier, more efficient? Well, one of the things that I've learned is is that uh, regardless of what industry you work in, regardless the size of your uh, organization, one thing that you always have to keep in mind is, is my program scalable? Can it match the growth of my organization or uh, in your particular industry, if your customer base is growing exponentially, you have to be able to protect that. And so I love uh, automation. I try to automate as much as possible and make my uh, deliverables more scalable and the support that I give to my internal teams. I want to make sure that's also scalable. And also I want it to be agile and uh, automation helps me do that. So I guess I would say one thing that's really helped me uh, or helped, uh, something that I've picked up over uh, the years that I've been doing this is that uh, automation is integral to uh, rapid dissemination and getting the right information to the right people at the right time. Yeah, I would agree that the efficiency and scalability are really important factors, right, of an intelligence team. Uh, has your use of or your opinion of tools and exterior services changed at all over the years? It really has. You know, um, before I joined the private sector, and I spent all of my time in the public sector pretty much my whole adult life. And um, so as I joined the private sector, there is, even though you might have various Intel premium Intel providers, they all focus on different areas. They all have different perspectives on intelligence and um, they all have different things about them that I really enjoy. So um, I've learned, I've learned that there are a lot of differences between providers that may focus all on the same thing, but they all have different um different contributions. And that has really helped me as an analyst to be able to have not only multiple sources, con, con, uh, excuse me, multiple sources confirming the same things, but also having different perspectives on the same things that they have confirmed. Um, I really enjoy uh, engaging with those teams individually and, and asking a little bit more about it and, and how they approached a particular um, conclusion and uh, things that we could do better, you know, when they give us advice on how to make my program better or things that I ask as far as best practices, what are, what are some of the things that your other customers are doing? Is there something that we're not thinking about that we should be doing? I'm always in learning mode and it really helps to have uh, all of those different perspectives available. You know, one thing in some of our earlier previous discussions, um, Lance, it, it seemed like you were an advocate of making an investigator out of everyone, even if it's not in, in your job description. And I know you like to, you love information. Um, but can you talk about, um, how that's benefited you in your career and made for better, um, intelligence products? If, if you consider everyone an investigator? Absolutely. So, um, you know, one of the things that I, one of the deadly sins that I think um, 
we can have as an in, as a threat intelligence analyst is a myopic view or a biased view uh, about a particular topic or about a particular attack or um, tactic, technique, and procedure. And so, by evangelizing, as I put it, about threat intelligence and trying to involve some of my incident responders and my threat hunter in threat intelligence, I feel that I can get, gain a better perspective and a more holistic perspective by incorporating their, their thoughts. And um, also, I become a better um, supporter of their programs when they tell me, here's how we're using the intelligence you're giving me. And here's something that we really lack. If you have any input on this that we could benefit from, it only makes my program better because I'm able to serve my internal stakeholders that much better. So that's internally. Externally, if I can involve more um, folks who are just graduating some of these cyber boot camps and, and graduating university and or who are just now entering into um, cybersecurity, they are incredibly smart. They, are, they grew up with uh, the information age. They grew up with uh, devices, things that I didn't grow up with. So they have a, a different way of thinking and they can solve things a lot differently and a lot faster in some cases. So if I can get more of them into the industry, I think they will be the thought leaders of the future and say, here's where we need to go if we're going to stay ahead of some of these threats. Because I can tell you on the dark web, a lot of these actors are incredibly innovative and they figure out a way. You can have the best defense in the world, but they can figure out a way around that very quickly and, uh, and very creatively. So I think we're going to stay ahead of that. We need to have some of these uh, new folks coming into the industry with their mindsets and, and their way of, of solving for some of these issues. Lance, I really like your idea there of including multiple teams, especially from cyber defense in the intelligence cycle uh, as consumers or maybe even uh, those people driving some of the requirements for the intelligence collection and analysis. So I want to circle back, if we could, on something you mentioned about the need to confirm intelligence hypotheses or different perspectives. What's the role of attribution in that and what's the value of that? Uh, and there are different opinions on that, I guess. So I'd like to get your thoughts, I guess, on what the value is that you see of attribution when it comes to cyber incidents. So I, I think there are some very strong opinions about that, about attribution and the value of that. I think that uh, there are there are folks who feel that it's just too easy to pretend that you're someone else. And, um, and it's easy to make it seem like it's coming from someone else uh, or another country, if you will. And so uh, there are people who say attribution is of no value. But then there are people in the camp that I'm in, which is that may be true, but there's also uh, there are also other ways that you could potentially validate your hypothesis when it comes to attribution, because you can look at some of the TTPs that are being exhibited by this threat actor. And if those TTPs match up with who you think it might be or who you're attributing this uh, attack to, then I think that is... Um, a little bit helpful for you to at least form the direction of your investigation. And then if you confirm that that's not the case, you just go back as you normally would and, and reevaluate your, your hypothesis. And I think one more thing about attribution as far as the value goes is if you can, at least with reasonable certainty, determine who 
a threat actor might be, you can at least have a general idea of what their motivation might be. And if you're familiar with what their motivation might be, then you know how to, what to defend and how to defend against it. So I, I do think that there's some value to it, but I, I can recognize the, uh, the merit of both sides of the argument. Yeah. And I guess it depends on the, the person's role too, right? So if you're the, the president of a company, let's say, uh, or, or maybe the CFO of a company and you've just lost millions of dollars because of a cyber compromise, you, you probably don't care too much if it's China or Russia, Iran, or, or some, uh, uh, ransomware gang or something. Right. But uh, from the cyber defense perspective, it's many times helpful to know uh, what to look for and the other uh, tactics and techniques that they may be using on the network. And, and as you pointed out, too, the, the motivation can be uh, very valuable to cyber defense as well. Right. And, and I will add to that, that at least according to recent reports, there is an increasing overlap between e-crime and nation state actors. So even if you've only narrowed it down to nation state or narrowed it down to e-crime, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's limited to that realm. And a lot of these, um, these actors are uh, moonlighting in their off hours as e-crime. These nation state actors are moonlighting in their off hours as e-crime actors and using their skills to further their, uh, their own interests, uh, monetary interests uh, after hours. So I think attribution is um, probably going to become less and less relevant as uh, we see more of this overlap. But at least for now, at least it gives you a, um, a direction to head with your hypothesis and, and either confirm or refute your, your own hypothesis. That that makes a lot of sense, Lance. Um, so we, you know, earlier you said, so obviously right now you're in the camp of, of, uh, attribution has, has value also said, um, you know, bringing others into the fold, uh, to help, um, Mm -hmm. establish your hypothesis, uh, other members of the team. So I wanted to reverse that a little bit. So those are things that you think people should do. Is there something that you think folks individually or as a whole threat intelligence teams um, should stop doing uh, that, that tends to be something that you see going in the threat intelligence world? Maybe they should stop doing certain things going forward. I mentioned earlier that it is I think one of the deadly sins to have a myopic view of um, of threat intelligence and saying, well, all I need to do for my organization is uh, ingest some indicators and um, watch out for e-crime. If you take that myopic view, you are excluding the possibility that you might be compromised by a nation state actor and you may not be necessarily aware of um, the interests that a nation state actor might have in your organization. You know, if you're a financial organization or a hospitality organization, that might be of interest to a nation state actor who is tracking, um, dissidents or tracking, uh, people of interest for their espionage program, you know, something like that. So, um, I think, People, if they have a myopic view and are limiting what they're doing with their threat intelligence for their organization based on that myopic view, that's definitely something that they should stop doing and have more of a holistic view, being aware of not only what's happening on the dark web, but also geopolitical events, what's being discussed on social media, on Twitter. There are a lot of incredibly helpful 
uh, cybersecurity feeds, and they will list some of the uh, most recent uh, malware attacks and malware that's never been seen before. So I think that is a better thing to do for your program and for your organization is, is having that holistic view. And the other one, which I alluded to uh, briefly, is um, thinking that just ingesting indicators is enough and that that counts as threat intelligence. That's nothing more than data. And if you really want to do threat intelligence for your organization, you have to figure out how to synthesize that data into actionable defenses and actionable steps uh, for uh, other teams within your organization. That, that's really interesting, Lance. Um, the I'm curious on the on the nation state side. So, you know, some things you were saying that, that stop doing. You also, I guess, the reverse of that is to start uh, looking more into the nation state that side of things and also to start, uh, you know, expanding beyond your feeds. Um, is that from your Air Force background or do you think are you seeing in the private sector that focus beyond the e-crime into into this being potentially being nation state when you, you may not have thought it had any um, they'd have any interest in your organization. Is, is that starting to permeate through the private sector, do you think, or, is, or are we still early days there? It's probably a little bit of both. Um, you know, I think having a military background, I'm, I'm also, or I'm always thinking geopolitically and uh, what effect that might have on whatever organization I happen to belong to at the time before it was the air force. Now it's, it's with clear. And, um, but I do think that there is a growing threat from nation state actors within the private sector. And although that doesn't exclude the public sector, obviously they are interested just as much in uh, our state secrets as they are with intellectual property and anything that will further their goals, whether they be economic or technological I think that uh, nation state actors would not hesitate to try to integrate within the uh, private sector. And also, as we saw with solar winds, I think nation state actors are, or at least nation state governments are starting to see the, the growing value of supply chain attacks and, you know, both public sector and private sector are using some of the same solutions. Uh, in this case, it was solar winds, but, Many organizations use, a lot of the organizations use the same uh, suppliers for two-factor authentication, for uh, email, and for everyday uh, productivity apps. So it would not be a far stretch, I think, for nation states, particularly Russia and China, to recognize the value of supply chain attacks and to increase um, those attacks because you get more bang for your buck in a, a supply chain attack than you would let's say from just targeting, you know, the state department directly or, uh, you know, mom and pops, um, cybersecurity firm. So I, I think, uh, supply chain has sort of changed the game for all of us. Yeah. That's, a, a an attack that many people have either discounted in the past or, uh, or maybe just weren't aware of, uh, I think in the past too. So the, the awareness of that is, um, giving a great deal of pause, I think, to many people to reconsider where they're buying from. So uh, that's a good point. Exactly. Yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit uh, as we start to close out here. 
uh, in terms of tools and services that are out there, are there any go-to tools or services that you'd recommend for folks to check out uh, as they're looking to perform cyber threat intel? Absolutely. You know, um, I one of the things that I take advantage of a lot is uh, Google dorking. You know, I think there's a lot of information out there that is not exactly indexed. And if you want to find out a little bit more information about something using Google dorks, is um, very valuable. So in that case, I, I might go to ExploitDB and check out some of those tools. The uh, the OSINT framework is another favorite of mine. I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with that, but it gives you, I think, a really good uh, total or holistic list of tooling available for OSINT press practitioners. And then uh, also, I don't know if a lot of people are aware of this, but Several years ago, Bellingcat uh, released a uh, publicly available Google Google Doc or Google Sheets that uh, listed a lot of the sources they use for OSINT. And I think they're some of the best in the business as far as OSINT, uh, um, OSINT research goes. And they can do some really amazing things. So that is another favorite of mine. I go there. Uh, frequently to look at that sheet. It's broken up in tabs based on what kind of information you're looking for. And um, and then uh, let's see, lastly is a, uh, a GitHub repository called Awesome OSINT. A lot of really great tools there. And um, so I would say those are those are some of my favorites as far as tools go. Lance, what, what could we start doing in the threat intelligence community? That's a great question, uh, Jeff. I think that uh, among other things, collaborating regularly with uh, fellow threat intelligence practitioners throughout the industry, as well as other other teams, incident responders, uh, malware analysts, and so on. I don't think that we share enough in this industry. And I know that everyone's trying to maintain the confidentiality of, of the goings on within their organizations, but I think there is a way that we can share at least some of the telemetry we're seeing from threat actors and some of the um, the tactics, techniques, and procedures that we're witnessing to help each other along. And we're also not all at the same level. And uh, I think that if we're going to help each other grow, then sharing um, best practices the way we have been, but to a greater degree. Uh, with each other would help some, grow some of these uh, threat intel analysts that we so so badly need in the organization. Um, and then um, lastly, I would say uh, integrating threat intel into as many uh, teams as possible internally within your organization. There are so many different areas, vulnerability management, risk, uh, third-party risk, risk and governance, um, customer service. There are, these are all different organizations within or teams within your organization that could benefit from threat intelligence, either from uh, breach notifications to compromised credentials to uh, indicator enrichment for your incident responders. Um, I'm a real big proponent of pushing threat intelligence throughout the organization to give them a better idea of what's going on in the threat landscape and, and how it might impact their particular uh, team mission. Well, Lance, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thanks to our guest, Lance Taylor, a very experienced cyber threat professional. 
Uh, and if you liked what you heard today, you can subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. You can also watch episodes of our show on YouTube and view transcripts and other episode info on our website at authenticate.com slash needlestack. That's authentic with the number eight dot com slash needlestack. And be sure to follow us as well on Twitter at needlestack underscore pod. We'll be back next week with more on SOC investigations and CTI analysis. We'll see you then. Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8, .com.